Thank you, Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. Welcome back to Hanging with History. This is season one, that miracle that happened, that one time. And this is episode 10, The Origins of Parliament. This is a re-recording of episode 10, made in 2022. The original was pretty cringe. I had spent about 10 or 15 minutes developing a concept of mental, emotional, and spiritual toolboxes that I thought I would make more use of as the season progressed, but I ended up not using it much. So I basically have deleted all of that. If you want to say anything about this re-recording, email me at hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com. The Viking Ark ended Episode 9. We had a high-level look at England during the period of the Viking invasions and conquests, and this is going to be a probably too short three-episode arc on medieval England. If this were a purely chronological history podcast, it kind of is, but it is fundamentally organized around thematic context for the miracle, then we would cover the consolidation of the Norman Conquest, William's final Danegeld, and the Domesday Book, which was a census of land taxable by the king, compiled in 1086. The Domesday Census, a primary source document without par, found that 9% of the population of England were slaves. It's the late 11th century, and there are still lots of slaves. That would have to stop, because William and much of the new Norman aristocracy found slavery deeply troubling in the Catholic-Christian complex of ideas at the time, and so they ended it. Our information about the slaves is pretty limited. As far as I can tell, they just became part of the lowest class of laborers on farms with obligations to labor for their lords for about a third of the year. Oh, so now there are only one-third slaves? Okay, that snarky voice is Knight Rider. She's very strong on cognitive biases and a longtime friend of the show. Slavery in the Middle Ages is pretty complicated. The word slave itself doesn't tell us much during this time period. These slaves joined the class of people we often call serfs. Some prefer the term villain, which just, which just means villagers, even more generic. Because even serfdom is a very varied status that meant different things in different places and times. Max Weber provides the classic simplified description. A slave had no free time except what they were granted, and no rights to associate, most critically to marry and raise their own children, except as they were granted permission. A serf could count on some free time, mainly to work their own plot, and could marry who they wished and raise their children, though they often had to get their lord's permission to wed. Even so, though this permission might be more perfunctory and simply involve a fee, I was about to say a small fee, but while it may have been small to a lord, it might be a large fee to a serf, kind of like buying a diamond wedding ring today. Critically, a female serf had to consent to marriage as part of that Christian package of ideas first mentioned in episode 3, though what pressures might be brought to bear on young women, we really don't know. Anyway, this amount of slavery, 9%, was unusual for a Western Christian land in the 11th century. Another thing about the Domesday Book is the undercount of free peasants, especially in the Midlands and the North. 
These people were of less concern to the royal administration of the time, but we do see England as different, more freedom, more slavery, paradox and contradiction again. And finally, the Domesday Book, which, again, nothing like it is available for any country on the continent, lists the holders and values of land pre-conquest and in 1086. Many of the records show decreases in value, and something like 60% of the manors in the north are in waste. And this gives us a glimpse into the trauma England underwent following the Norman conquest and the later replacement of the Anglo-Danish nobility with the Norman-French nobility. In this struggle, many towns were almost depopulated and many villages were entirely ruined. Orderic Vitalis, writing about 50 years after this trauma, asserts that 75% of the population of the North was destroyed or displaced. Now, there are two primary episodes of this in the North. There's William's harrying of the North in 1070 and his brother Odo, Bishop of Bayeux, in 1080, both times following rebellions. Nowadays, most modern historians question whether the Normans could have been capable of killing off most of the North. I mean, capable of it logistically. The chronicles are quite clear that they had few moral scruples about it. Uh, Taking the logistical question first, they would have had to physically go to most places in a vast region and set them ablaze. Manors, villages, primarily storehouses. Most of the deaths would have come from starvation after their stores of food were burned or stolen. And this arc will cover the more obviously English innovations of the High Middle Ages, Magna Carta and Parliament. We'll we'll also look at the destruction of the Templars, which was really just a vibration from the earthquake of the French capture of the papacy. And we'll also get into England as the subject of a vast international religious conspiracy. No, a real thing, not kooky stuff. But first, let's step back in time much further. At the beginning of the Bronze Age, Britain was lightly settled with fewer people on the whole island than just the city of Uruk in Mesopotamia and its near neighbors. Britain was very much on the periphery of human habitation, and this relates to Emmanuel Todd's thesis that a peripheral area like Britain would be less culturally evolved than areas densely populated for long times and culturally closer to original Homo sapiens, as discussed in episode 3. Now, if I skip ahead 3,000 years to the Roman colony of Britain, we have a strange situation. Rome devoted about 10% of its land forces to Britain for about 300 years, but Britain was one of the least significant colonies economically. The whole enterprise made no financial sense for Rome. Uh, Britain is just difficult to defend when armies bigger or better or both can just sail over from the continent with ease. And it all ended in 407 AD when the legions of Rome left Britain. Though details aren't clear, the natives seem to have expelled the rest of the Roman administration two years later in 409. Then we see another unusual thing outside the European pattern. Britain entered a period of 150 years of independence until the Anglo-Saxon conquest. The independence from Rome was unique, but so is the way it happened. I'm going to rely on Paul Johnson's interpretation of this time for those of you playing along at home. The British actually asked Western Roman Emperor Honorius 
to revoke, I'm going to use a Latin term here, revoke Lex Julia Divi Publica for Britain. Uh, This was the bedrock statute of the Roman Empire. It forbade all citizens from carrying weapons unless hunting or traveling. It basically enshrined the supremacy of the Roman state by giving the state a monopoly of armed violence. And they got a positive reply. You can have swords, bows, spears, and armor. You can go your own way and defend yourselves. Oh, God. Did you just introduce a gun control issue into the podcast? Um, no. Guns didn't exist. I mean, a partisan could try making an argument from the Roman obsession over controlling weapons and the subsequent decline in freedoms, economic and intellectual stagnation, and the moral decline we see in the Roman Empire, and the still brutally oppressive unified sword and cross society that evolved out of it. But there's not great evidence for that, and you know, history rhymes rather than repeats. And you know, gun control is one of those closed minds, skew lines type issues where no one will ever change their minds. My side is good and smart, and yours is irredeemably bad. Okay, yeah, so Britain was given independence and allowed self-defense. This is absolutely unique. We have to, you know, set this aside and point to it as another way that Britain is very, very different. No other Roman province followed this path to independence. Independence wasn't due to conquest by outsiders, but independence achieved by law. And this kicked off 150 years of independence, uh, an independent church with its own ideas, its own missionary activity its own indices of success and failure, its own Pelagian ideas of free will and the vital importance of human action in the world. And some say this would be an early example of what made Britain special. Was it all, or was there anything downstream of this? The Joseph of Arimathea myth, assuming it is a myth, was born at this time or reflecting upon it later. And whatever the truth about the details of this, and historians don't agree, When people looked back on this period from the perspective of the 15th and 16th centuries, they could see and feel themselves something special, something unique, something better than those people on the continent. Uh, This is one example of how the mental, emotional, and spiritual toolbox can be filled with something that might not even be real. And there's an even bigger example, Parliament itself. Uh, Usually this story is told after the story of Magna Carta, but uh, thematically I think it belongs here. Parliament gradually evolved out of the royal councils required by Magna Carta, which they were already having anyway, of which we'll talk about in episode 11. By 1325, it grew beyond just magnates and nobles. The shires and the boroughs were required to be represented, and this is going far deeper into society than before. It's not until 1376 that we see Parliament angrily and self-righteously taking on a corrupt, incompetent royal administration. A little before that, we see a crown in extremis sharing the national accounts, the revenues and expenditures with Parliament to prove they could not go on without more money. And there, completely normally, it's doing what we normally think of Parliament doing. Nothing to see here, barely even a part of history. It's daily routine. Except it was the first time. And there was not conscious innovation at work here. I mean, it was innovation, great innovation. The future prosperity of the world may well have depended upon it. You have a category of innovation which is not conscious innovation? 
But it was not conscious innovation, some new thing the people in Parliament had to do to solve a crisis. People believed things had always been done this way. And I know this sounds impossible, but there was a lie that everyone believed. What are you talking about? A funny document, serious but deeply weird, called Modus Tenende Parliamentum, was written in 1321. It took a while for it to be popularized, but it's, it became widely read by the people who could read, and this would have been about 70% of the yeoman class. It's a document about the ideals of Parliament, what it is for, what powers it has, and what its procedures are. And that's fine and unremarkable. Good on the anonymous author, too, for sitting down and tackling those issues. Ideals, purpose, policies, and procedures. It's good planning to do that before a crisis. Good to plan before a crisis comes. I wonder what makes me have that thought. Hmm. <laughs> You're not weird yet. What's the lie? But the deeply weird thing is that the document does not say things like, Parliament should do this, or Parliament ought to involve itself under these circumstances, or Parliament's procedures should follow this plan. Instead, it uses language like, Parliament does this, Parliament has always done that. You see the difference from should do something and always does something, and always has done? It's not normative, it's claiming to be descriptive. It's not a mere grammatical difference, it's an assertion about reality that was not true. The author was lying or exaggerating wildly. He was seizing the intellectual high ground of the Middle Ages. This is how things have always been done. We don't know for sure what he or she meant or why he chose to write it this way, but we do know it was widely read, widely circulated, and pretty soon Parliament in practice did correspond with its theories. It was banned and then read all the more. The author's fantasy, if that's what it was, became reality, and its ideas were considered pretty radical by the royal administrations, but their attempts to ban possession of the work may have strengthened its hold on people's mental toolbox. Is that weird enough for you? Weird enough to be a small miracle on its own, a eucatastrophe, if you will? Parliament and its powers, unlike representative bodies everywhere else, did not become an open political issue until it had been long established as a foundational part of the political landscape. This genie could not be put back in the bottle, unlike all the others. There were other parliaments elsewhere? Yes, historians usually say that the church helped establish them deliberately to increase its influence. It started with urban centers getting self-government. In France, there were 16 established urban centers with self-governing under charters by the end of the 11th century, and over 100 by the end of the 13th. Kings and nobles would give up some of their rights over towns in exchange for revenue. McCloskey summarizes it as, quote, You leave me alone, I'll make you rich. The bourgeois bargain. This led to the Estates General in France from 1302, matching the English timeline pretty well, but the Estates General were suppressed in 1614. Divine right monarchy. The Cortes in Castile had an even earlier start, but became a rubber stamp by the 16th century, as Spanish monarchs deliberately and successfully reduced the power of the middle class, 
Castile hobbled itself that way. It's quite an astonishing policy choice. But actually, on a global scale, it was the normal choice for powerful, secure autocracies. And Aragon and Catalonia also had older parliaments but lost power under Castilian monarchs. The Riksdag in Sweden started in 1435, but lost most of its power in 1634. Divine right monarchy, baby. A terrible idea that flourished, but believe it or not, even that is a controversial statement. There were Republican city-states in Italy. Venice, Genoa, and Florence might be the ones best known to listeners. It's an interesting question why these places were not the source of the miracle. They had a lot of advantages that we will see were possessed by the Dutch republics in England. They had governments that actively supported increasing commerce. They had a high amount of social cohesion, deriving from a greater amount of inclusion by a greater number of people in civic life. More wealth, more broadly distributed. This can translate to better morale on the battlefield and at sea, social mobility that allows you to benefit from the talents, energies, and skills your people have to a far greater degree than a noble monarchical society can. In other words, the republics are better person for person, agricultural productivity can be higher, problems in governments can be addressed faster, all other productivity can be higher, as in manufacturing, they can innovate, and they can be better at war. So why didn't we see the miracle from the Italian city-states? I mean, surely they were richer and had the potential for the miracle. They were the richest in Europe until the Flemish passed them by. But Well, they had a religion problem. They never had the Reformation to drive mass literacy, so no impulse to mass education. And when the Protestant countries were experiencing the benefits of seizing church lands and telling people to think for themselves, the Italian city-states were experiencing the Counter-Reformation. Severe top-down repression. Gather wood, boys. Time for a burning. An even tighter church control killed off the Italian Renaissance, which had so much potential. Too much centralized power, political-slash-religious violence, too much thought control. They killed off free speech and crippled themselves. Now, other people will point out that the Italian church was sort of reformed already. It was just not as bad as the church in Germany and Scandinavia, and didn't generate that kind of hard reaction against itself. I'd still like to visit Italy sometime. It seems like a beautiful country. All right, back to England. More on Italy later. England was left with a parliament which was increasingly becoming more broadly representative, a counterweight to all the bad tendencies monarchs are prey to. They are prey to bad tendencies, which operated under a number of wise, practical principles and was so entrenched in the minds of the people That when the monarchy under James I and Charles I tried to repress them or operate without them, the monarchy failed. And Parliament got there to its indispensable condition partially through a most fascinating historic lie. A counterfeit, a mad dream that escaped into the real world and remade the world in its image. A mad dream that escapes into the world and remakes the world in its image. Seems mythological. And what else? What kicked off the drift into Parliament from the Royal Council of the King? That was Magna Carta, another special, very specifically English thing. Magna Carta wasn't the product of a mad dreamer like the Modus Tenende Parliamentum, 
But it was a crazy document in its own right. It was also founded on a kind of falsehood that colonized the minds of the English first, and later all Britain and then the world. But we need more time to discuss that. We have episode 11. Modus Tenende Parliamentum is actually one of several medieval documents that were forged, faked, dreamed up, we think, to improve church power. The most famous of all being the donation of Constantine, where Constantine, the highest possible choice of human authority, gives power over the Latin West to the papacy, specifically Pope Sylvester. These forgeries use the same rhetorical weapon, the claim that things had always been this way, which was the intellectual high ground. The medievals were always self-consciously conservative, even when suggesting radical new ideas. The various writers may even have believed they were recreating a document that must have existed and was now lost. The mad dream escaping into the world is Paul Johnson's vision. And for this re-recording, there won't be a Conversations with Cammie. Please click subscribe or follow on your podcast app. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend about it. If you don't, please tell an enemy. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to discuss anything covered in the episode, please feel free to email me at hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.